Hi, my name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames cast, and I'm here to introduce yet another new show in the series. And this one's going to be slightly more kind of um, unplanned, spontaneous, and it's just going to basically focus on things like what I've been watching, um, topics that have caught my eye, um, soundtracks, um, film and television news, and just about anything really that um, kind of grabs my interest. And I'll be concluding each show with a more in-depth review. This week I've decided to have a look at the Battle of Algiers, uh, the 1966 film by Gio Pontecorvo, for reasons I'll explain in more detail later. The first topic um, I want to be talking about a podcast that I listen to, and in particular the Criterion cast, which is, well you might be able to guess, um, a podcast which talks about the Criterion collection. Each week the show picks a film out of the collection and uh, the three hosts and normally a guest um, sit around and talk about it. Um, I haven't actually listened to it now for about three weeks on the basis that I like to watch the films before I listen to the show so I can kind of get more involved in the conversation and to my horror when I went back and listened to the Bigger Than Life episode I found that the show's host Rudy Obias had actually left the show. Um, I've later found out the reason for this was because of creative differences and I think we can kind of read into that what we want but the simple fact of the matter is that the show has changed um, since Rudy's gone. They've decided to uh, change the format over. Uh, Ryan and James, who were the other two hosts, um, are kind of taking things in a slightly dis- uh, different direction. And I've got to be honest, so far I'm kind of struggling to adapt to the new format. Um, I think it misses Rudy from the group dynamic. He was a pretty funny guy and a really kind of good host and had a kind of funny way about him and was able to really kind of uh, generate some kind of interesting conversations. Of course, um, I'll certainly be sticking with it because it is, it is a great show and I think it's kind of just in a bit of a period of transition. But if you are interested in the Criterion Collection, I would definitely recommend it. Um, the other show I want to give a shout out to is one of my new favourite ones, which is the Midnight Movie Cowboys, which is hosted by two chaps called Scott and Hunter. Um, like myself, I think they are probably children of the Hollywood Saloon podcast. Um, still by far the greatest there is. If you haven't um, listened to that before, I certainly suggest you get yourselves over to the Hollywood Saloon and check it out because it really is kind of the benchmark by which I think all podcasts should be judged. The podcast isn't just a simple review show. It kind of, they Scott and Hunt seem to pick a topic and uh, get stuck in. The show lengths uh, kind of vary from one to three hours. It's great stuff. I kind of like, much like my own really, I think it's kind of finding its way out there and uh, I do wish them the very best. Definitely go and check it out. Um, I've also one of kind of newsy shows to address certain issues such as um, kind of feedback I've had from listeners and things and I had uh, had a couple of emails from people asking me if there was ever going to be a donate button up on the blog. Um, I think I might have said something about it in a post before but uh, basically the 24 frame cast cost me £6 a month and that is everything, all the web hosting, all the bandwidth um, and basically any time that I kind of want to invest in it. So for that reason, really, I'm never ever going to ask people to donate money to it. But if you do want to support the show, you can do so in other ways by kind of leaving reviews on iTunes um, or anywhere where you can kind of review podcasts or even just recommending it to friends or putting a link up on a forum or whatever. Um, I've been really encouraged in recent months by the amount of new listeners that are coming on board as well as the amount of hits that the blog is receiving. So so if you do want to help out and support the show, please just do uh, leave a review where you can. Within my circle of friends, I think I am certainly the most film obsessed and I often find myself kind of wanting to talk about films kind of all the time. I'm sure that's something which we all want to do when we're kind of cinephiles. And I've been looking for a kind of time and place to rant about this next issue, which uh, I think this kind of podcast is going to be the uh, format for that. And it is the ongoing issue of 
being ripped off on Blu-ray and DVD. Now, of course, this is absolutely nothing new. I think anyone who collects films will testify to the fact that, as film fans, we are made to suffer by studios. About two years ago, my DVD player broke, and I went to the shop to buy a new one, and basically, to buy a new DVD was exactly the same price as buying a Blu-ray, so I decided to buy a Blu-ray because, you know, what the hell, new format and everything. I hadn't really jumped on the bandwagon at all. The whole HD, DVD versus Blu-ray thing kind of irritated me and I, I wanted to see the kind of format settle down before I decided to dip in and the breaking of my DVD player did present that opportunity. I didn't really buy many Blu-rays at all really to begin with and over the past three months I have become utterly obsessed with the format. Uh, purchased a new 50-inch plasma and Blu-rays just look incredible on it and I have been absolutely snapping them up in massive numbers. I've been on eBay picking them up, buying off Amazon Marketplace like anyone's business and I've decided to do a few double dips on films which I kind of previously owned, one of which was The Prestige, which um, I think I wrote a blog entry about it saying it was actually my favourite film of the last uh, decade and there will be an episode on Christopher Nolan sometime in the future in which I'll talk about why I love The Prestige so much then. But I decided after having a look on Blu-ray.com and reading the review about The Prestige Blu-ray, the reference quality picture and sound, I decided to double dip and purchased it off eBay for about £7. The Blu-ray came, I popped it into the player and the first thing I notice is the sound is only Dolby 5.1 which obviously is a great format but from the Blu-ray.com review it said it was uncompressed LPCM and it was absolutely incredible. Well on my disc that wasn't it so I began to kind of wonder if there was actually a fault on the disc, checked it and nope, there was no option to find the LPCM soundtrack. So that irritated me a bit then I looked at the picture and well, that was um, a significant improvement over the standard definition DVD I already own. I wasn't that blown away with it, so I double-checked online and sure enough found out that the European release of the Blu-ray, which was done by Warner Brothers, is inferior in almost every way to its US counterpart, which was released by Disney. To begin with, the actual size of the file was about 20 gigabytes. In America, it's 30 gigabytes, so that extra 10 gigabytes was uh, for the better picture and audio. And to be honest with you, this time I was actually pretty pissed off, and of course this is nothing new again. Um, both sides of the Atlantic have reason to gripe about releases in the other's respective territory. I know, for example, uh, Glengarry Glen Ross was a film which in Europe you could only get a uh, pan and scan video transfer of the film, which was absolutely awful with a crappy soundtrack. In America they had the widescreen version with a DTS soundtrack, and this is absolutely nothing new. but. For some reason I naively thought that this time in this format they would get it right, that there wouldn't be this discrepancies um, between releases depending on where you live in the world. And of course, as I've actually researched the subject a lot more, um, I found that there are many, many instances of this. For one, I own the Zodiac Director's Cut. Well, if you live in uh, Europe and have the Warner Brothers release, again, you have an inferior product, the sound and the visual, which I have double-checked actually with the American release and the difference is quite notable. But the simple fact remains that we are once again as consumers getting screwed over by the studios. One release which I have been looking out for since uh, well, the past couple of years really is the Lord of the Rings Extended Editions. They've already been released in the original theatrical cut format on Blu-ray. Um, there were some quibbles over the picture quality on the Fellowship of the Ring and recently I discovered that the Extended Editions will be coming to Blu-ray in June. However, before you get too excited, just know that Although the films are going to be on Blu-ray, the extras, the appendices, which you already own if you've got the extended versions, are just going to be standard DVDs. You will not be getting any kind of quality upgrade in that department, and you will essentially be buying something that you already own. 
the Blu-rays themselves will be over two discs, which I'm hoping means that the uh, picture transfer will be absolutely top-notch, as I understand that the only film in the trilogy that is getting a significant improvement in picture from the original Blu-ray release is The Fellowship of the Ring, which leads me to believe, I think with some justification, that post The Hobbit there will be some kind of ultimate remastered, remastered edition for another dip. And again, I'm kind of sensing the fact that we could have a triple dip already on the Blu-ray. I know it's happened with films like um, Casino Royale and Terminator 2. And I wonder when studios do this, they realise the kind of effect that they're actually having on us consumers. In the case of The Prestige, I was so enraged when I realised the difference. I actually put my copy back up on eBay, which I sold for more than I actually bought it for, which was a result. And proceeded to have a look online and downloaded all 32 gigabytes of the American release of the Blu-ray to play on my popcorn hour box. And oh yes, this is definitely um, piracy, and I don't kind of make any bones about it. But I just suddenly was so enraged by the fact that I was being screwed over again that I decided to kind of take the law into my own hands and get the hold of the copy that I want because obviously the American releases are also region locked now. I'm not kind of obviously justifying mass piracy, but. I wonder if really the studios realise that by doing what they're doing there are going to be consequences that will kind of force people into piracy. I watched a disc the other day and there were 10 minutes of trailers on the disc and I was unable to skip them in any way. I couldn't fast forward, I couldn't go to the menu. And really if you kind of go online you can easily find 1080p rips of films which with a fast internet connection you can download in less than an hour. That probably give you a superior experience to sitting through 10 minutes of trailers for films which are pretty awful on the one. The Blue Eyes actually watching had a trailer for the uh, high art that is Yogi Bear. This also leads me on to another set which I'm looking, got my eye on at the moment, which is the Stanley Kubrick Blu-ray collection. Now, this is a box set which contains Spartacus, um, 2001, Lolita, Barry Lyndon, A Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut, The Shining as well, I think's in there. Now, although I was initially quite excited by looking at this set, I have discovered since that Lolita and Barry Lyndon, and Barry Lyndon in particular, which is probably my favourite Stanley Kubrick film, will not be sold separately. So if I do want to see those on Blu-ray, I will then have to buy the box set. And this might kind of think, well, you know, it's one of those kind of double dips that's worth it. But I am also quite concerned about um, some of the Blu-rays that are in existence, especially I spoke about it on the last episode on The World at War, because as I understand, Full Metal Jacket and The Shining have now been expanded visually to fit widescreen televisions, which anyone who knows Kubrick will know that he was a big fan of the Academy Ratio and that's how he wanted his films to be seen. If you own the uh, DVD set, that is how they are presented. So basically, if I want to see Barry Lyndon in high definition, I will have to buy the box set and it will probably be um, enhanced for my television, which isn't the way in which Stanley Kubrick wants me to see the film. And I think Stanley Kubrick is far too important an artist to kind of mess around with in this way. Included on the set is going to be the Stanley Kubrick Life and Picture series, and I understand there's a hardback book as well. But again, I will be faced with the problem do I part with something like £60 when perhaps if I wait a couple of months, someone might post up the full Blu ray files of something like Barry Lyndon and Lita to download? And really, if I do buy these box sets, is there going to be another special edition release? Because lots of those films are coming up to anniversary releases. Um, I understand The Clockwork Orange is a um, 30 or 40 year um, anniversary edition, I can't remember which one, but um, it's a special edition release, but is, are we going to have those for The Shining and Full Metal Jacket in a few more years? Right, with all that aside, I'm going to get on to this week's featured review, which is Gio Pontecorvo's 1966 film, The Battle of Algiers. <laughs> 
Nous sommes arrivés à la moyenne de 4,2 attentats par jour. Oui, il faut distinguer les attaques individuelles et les attentats à la bombe. Nous disons qu'il y a une minorité qui s'impose par la terreur et la violence. Nous devons agir sur cette minorité dans le but de l'isoler et de la détruire. La France doit-elle rester en Algérie Si vous répondez encore oui, vous devez en accepter toutes les conséquences nécessaires. And I was amazed not only by how good it was from how I remember it, but also with the current political situation in the Middle East and recent history, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan. I thought it was a good time to talk about the film. It chronicles the Algerian battle for independence from the French between 1954 and 1962. The political military movement responsible for this were called the FLN, and although the fights took place all over the country, as the title of the film suggests, it actually takes place in Algiers and most notably the Kasbah area. Made in 1966 by Italian filmmaker Gio Pontecovo, he was himself a communist resistance fighter in Italy during the war who fought against not only his own countrymen but the occupying Nazis. He made a film in 1960 called Capo, which was a film about the Holocaust that was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars that year. Pontecovo and screenwriter Franco Salinas began work on a screenplay called Para. The original idea was to have a big budget Hollywood film with Paul Newman playing a disenchanted war vet from one of France's other colonial nightmares in Southeast Asia where the Viet Minh, who later become the Viet Cong, kicked the French out in a particularly bloody war, who relocates to the Kasbah and begins to experience the revolution. The idea was to have quite a Western-centric view of the uprising, similar to Newman's 1962 film Exodus, in which uh, he plays the lead character in a film about the creation of Israel. Now, coincidentally at this time, a former FLN colonel, Sadi Yesef, was actually looking to write an adaption of his memoirs that he wrote in prison. He was actually captured and sentenced to death three times by the French during the course of the uprising. He actually managed to get in contact with Pontecovo and Salinas in Italy, and they actually rejected his idea for the film, saying it was sickeningly propagandic. However, after these initial meetings, uh, Salinas and Pontecovo and Yesef decided that there was kind of room to develop a screenplay. Salinas and Pontecovo embarked on a furious round of interviews and trips to Algiers, and through Yosef they managed to meet many of the participants in the uprising. The direction of the film at this time changed quite considerably, and what Pontecovo actually decided to do was to completely strip away the kind of Hollywood artifice from it. Now, this was actually something I talked about in the very first episode of the 24 Frames cast, especially the filmmaker Peter Watkins, and we kind of think now films are kind of overblown, we kind of always like look at things like Michael Bay and kind of sigh at the kind of wall-to-wall -wall CGI, but there was a similar kind of problem in the 60s and I think actually throughout cinema there has been this kind of battle against getting the balance right between artifice and reality. Pontecovo decided that he wouldn't shoot the film in colour and actually decided he would go for 16mm instead which he thought audiences would be able to identify with bearing in mind that was how most people consumed their news in those days. Through quite a lot of negotiations Yetif was able to 
enlist many of the local population for the many crowd scenes and the Algerian army provided the military equipment and extras to play the French. Pontecovo cast almost entirely non-professional actors with the exception being Colonel Matthew who is the French paratrooper commander who comes in later in the film who was played by screen actor Jean Martin. Where Pontecovo didn't actually cast people on their acting ability he decided to cast them on their appearance alone and what you actually kind of see in the film is that the camera gets pushed quite close up to the faces of the locals and this is actually quite um, an interesting aspect of the film because many times when we see films which deal with colonialism the local population tend to kind of get reduced to a mass rather than any kind of individuality and are kind of patronised with crude stereotypes or their kind of simple existence through western eyes. Pontecovo celebrates the population and the diversity within the Casbah uh, most notably women feature quite prominently which I don't think it's um, racist or controversial for me to say but in Islamic culture women do tend to be marginalised. The film focuses on the recruitment of a young drifter called Ali Laponti played by Brahim Hagig. Now I apologise for, uh, for my pronunciation, I'm pretty certain that's pretty bad but he actually is a uh, young street criminal who gets imprisoned and whilst in prison he witnesses the execution of an FLN fighter by guillotine. Upon being released he gets recruited into the FLN and soon begins carrying out basic assassination jobs before he actually moves his way up to a fully fledged commander. We see a gradual escalation of the FLN activities until the situation gets out of control and the French decide to bring in the paratroopers led by the French Colonel Matthew. He is brought in to identify what the insurgency is all about and try and stop it at all costs. Pontecorvo could have easily made quite a biased film and Although lots of commentators have actually said that they think the film gives a very balanced view of the uprising, I don't necessarily agree with this. I think the film is very much anti-colonialism and I do think it does have an Algerian bias, but I do think it is actually fairly objective throughout. The cause of the FLN is absolute right, colonialism was wrong and make no mistake Britain and France were not um, particularly nice to the people of the countries that they were occupying. Likewise the French civilians in the film have the right to be protected and this is kind of where the film kind of gets very kind of um, morally ambiguous I think. The FLN certainly know what they're doing in the insurgency. The whole kind of point of an insurgency is to provoke a response from the occupier that far exceeds the magnitude of the crimes committed. Now this was especially relevant in Iraq where I saw numerous reports and if you look on many of the WikiLeaks that were came out in the media last year of instances of an Iraqi sniper in the middle of a densely populated area being attacked by a 3,000 pound bomb dropped by a plane. Now obviously you probably do kill the sniper but you probably kill quite a fair amount of civilians as well and this is exactly what insurgents want you to do. They want you to cause casualties to recruit people to their cause. When Colonel Matthew actually enters the film he is neither a pantomime villain or an irrational killer. He is a man brought in by the state to protect its civilians. He explains the concept of counterinsurgency and how you have to cut the head off the top in order to get rid of the people below it. And in one scene in a press conference, one of the journalists actually accuses him of being a Nazi and he reacts quite angrily and says, well, he actually fought against them and in no way does he see a comparison between what the French are doing and what the Nazis did. But obviously, if you look at it from a kind of wider perspective, there certainly are comparisons between the two. Both are occupiers in foreign lands suppressing a population but likewise I don't think the FLN are shown as being overly heroic um, they do have an Islamic agenda and when they begin to exert power in the Kasbah they do kind of come in with the moral high-mindedness of Islam um, the local 
pimp is killed and one fairly kind of bleak scene a drunken man walks through the streets and is dragged off by some children for a fate which i think we can easily imagine but regardless of this i think the film is completely underpinned by a great deal of humanity when the french begin to crack down on the casbah they seal it off with barbed wire and checkpoints and the fln are able to actually exploit a hole in this which is by needing women now in order to get through the women dawn western clothing and dye their hair and wear short skirts and whatnot and walk through to the French Quarter. Now, it could have easily shown these women as being emotionless killers, but something actually quite interesting happens when the women reach the target, which is uh, a couple of bars and I think it's the airport, uh, or it might I think it actually might be a race course or somewhere like that actually, but when they actually get there, they stop and they look around at the people who are about to die, and there is definitely a connection in their mind between what they are doing and the death of innocent people and indeed the people we see are completely innocent they're just young people enjoying music and or families sitting around having fun crucially after the bombs go off in the aftermath Pontecovo uses exactly the same musical cue as he does for when the French go into the Casbah and blow up a building and kill some civilians I think the message is very clear that in these kind of situations it is the innocent who suffer but there is this kind of constant yin and yang between the two sides. Another really horrific sequence is when two FLN fighters drive through the French Quarter simply doing drive-by shootings, and they literally shoot anyone. Now, I don't know, I don't care who you are, it is an appalling thing to see. But likewise, Pontecovo shows us scenes of the French torturing the locals and in the most barbaric, horrific ways. And you can think waterboarding must feel like a stroll in the park to some of the things that we see them doing with blow torches and electricity. In the moment all these seem horrific yet to the people perpetrating there are means to an end. Algeria did get its independence of course it is the right of people to be free even if the methods they use to achieve this are deplorable. I'm not condoning the murder of civilians by saying this moreover I'm trying to understand the reasoning to why human beings are compelled to commit these kinds of acts. The film is shot through with a journalist's fly on the wall aesthetic. When I saw the film again I actually thought some of the stock looked pretty bad but I later found out this was actually cinematographer Marcelo Gatti actually deliberately aged some of it to make it look more authentic in terms of newsreel footage. There are many crowd scenes in the film and likewise they look completely chaotic but as I understand they were all meticulously choreographed. Um, the film crew also built some buildings and then blew them up just for added authenticity. And There was actually a placard at the beginning of the film that used to tell people that everything in it was real and none of it was actually archival footage and that's quite an incredible statement I think to make because when you watch the film, especially when the bombs are going off after the women have planted them, the reaction on the extras' faces is um, pretty telling, I think. I don't think people really understood what was actually was going to happen. It's also one of Ennio Morricone's first um, scores, and Pontecovo actually did some of the arrangements himself, yet this isn't the Morricone we know from films like The Untouchables or The Mission. It's a very, very sparse, yet very effective score, and this is kind of in keeping with the film's editing style as well. It's a very fast-paced film. There's no wipes just very very simple cuts all of this creates a very real sense of urgency and tension in the film it's a very fast paced and incredibly exciting mind it actually kind of remind me a little bit of um, the Bourne films when the film came out in France it was almost instantly banned by the French government um, it did win the I think the Golden Bear at the Venice Film Festival that year and it wasn't actually until 1971 that it would get a mainstream release in France um, mainly at the behest of the director Louis Malley one of the reasons why I think I enjoyed the film so much is because it feels like a proper political film in the same kind of vein that Sergei Einstein was in the 20s and 30s 
I don't really think that we get those types of films anymore. And I recently watched Missing, and I, as I was watching it, I began to kind of think that really the political film has kind of moreover evolved into the thriller, which I think is a bit of a shame. And I think with what's going on in the world at the moment, I'm kind of hoping that um, perhaps there might be a resurgence of this type of film. Since the film has been released, it has also been kind of like a Bible for insurgency groups all over the world. The Black Panthers in America were known to have watched it. The IRA used to go to it quite a lot. And certainly I think there is quite a lot of speculation that the insurgents in Iraq have seen the film. Likewise, foreign armies actually show it to soldiers as an example of basically how to how to and to not fight a counterinsurgency war. For that reason, I think the Battle of Algiers is a film that's going to be around for a very, very long time, and deservedly so. It is quite brilliant, and I really do recommend checking it out. If you can, get hold of the three-disc Criterion edition. It is region-free, and I got mine imported for about £15. But if you can't get that, uh, make sure you check it out on Love Film or Netflix or whatever it is you uh, can see it on. Also, I think on Amazon at the moment, you can get it for about four quid. so make sure you grab it up. And that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. Um, you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. And you can visit me at the blog, which is 24framescast.blogspot.com. Okay, I will be in contact with you soon. And many thanks for listening. Bye.